Well, as Jesus was teaching in the temple at Jerusalem, the religious Jews who saw him as a threat to their way of life, as indeed he was, they confronted Jesus with several theological questions meant to discredit his authority on God's word. And after several failed attempts to trip him up, Along came a scribe, a, a theological scholar, the best and the brightest of the Pharisees, and he asked Jesus, of all of the commands, God, of all the laws in the Mosaic Covenant, out of, out of every religious doctrine that we have patterned our lives after, which one is singularly the most important? And Jesus replied not just to that scribe, but to all who would listen, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Mark 12, 29 and 30. And of course, if you've, uh, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you're probably well familiar with that passage of Scripture just as these religious Jews were because it was a direct quote of Deuteronomy 6, 4. You see, this wasn't actually a new command at all. It was, in fact, the oldest, the simplest, and the most important command for them to grasp. And yet, simultaneously, it was the one that eluded them more than all the others. Because it was the one command that threatened their way of life. By the late centuries B.C. and early centuries A.D., several factions or opposing sects of religious Jews had formed in a Palestinian Judaism. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and the Essenes, to name a few, and they all disagreed on how to interpret and apply the Mosaic Law, the, the Old Covenant Law, to their daily lives, even though the Hebrew people as a whole had patterned their lives around that same covenant for centuries, they couldn't seem to agree on how it should actually be interpreted or lived out in their lives. And so they separated themselves from one another, uh, at least in, in religious practice, much like our Christian denominations do today, even within evangelical Protestantism, because these Jewish religious factions could not agree on much of anything when it came to their faith. They had uh, complicated their religion over the ages by adding volumes of additional rules and practices and preferences and traditions to God's law, which over time became for them almost equal in authority and sacredness as the law itself. According to the first century, uh, Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, the Sadducees were primarily wealthy, uh, priestly families. They were generally, I was reading uh, his writing about them this week, he said they were generally unfriendly, even toward one another. Uh, we have numerous ancient rabbinical writings within the Talmud, including the Mishnah and the Makkah, which describe the Sadducees as being cruel judges. So as you can imagine, they were very unpopular among the masses. And theologically speaking, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Unlike the Pharisees, who did believe in the resurrection of the dead, as well as a myriad of extra-biblical traditions, which they added to the Old Covenant law, and yet they couldn't even fully agree amongst themselves on all of the extra-biblical teachings. And so even among the Pharisees, there were three separate factions, the disciples of Shammai, Hillel, and Gamaliel. Then there were the Herodians, the adversaries of the Pharisees, both politically and religiously, who 
really predominantly concerned themselves with the economic and political influence of the Herodian family and then of course the Essenes who we've been talking about to whom the letter to the Hebrews was written which we've been working our way through in our current sermon series and of all of these religious Jewish factions in Palestine according to both Josephus and uh, the ancient Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria the Essenes were were the most separatist and arguably the most religiously complex of them all they lived uh, communally in villages and cities in Palestine and Syria uh, according to Pliny the first century Roman author they also lived along the Dead Sea separating themselves as much as possible from the other Jewish sects. They shared everything in common, including food and clothing. Their wages were given to a steward who would purchase goods and then distribute them as needed. And they always took care of their sick and the elderly. Many of them would not marry, and yet the group would continue to grow by making new converts who would have to follow the Essene way of life for at least a year before they could be baptized into the sect, and yet they still had to continue living the strict practices of the Essenes for additional two years before they could actually live within the Essene community. They were so concerned about purity that they kept themselves separate. In fact, they only wore white linen garments. And we know uh, from the Damascus document, part of the Essenes' own writings in the Qumran, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that they refused to participate in the temple sacrifices because they believed the priests had defiled the sanctuary. Uh, you get the idea, right? We're just scratching the surface here. But you get the picture, the, the list of rules and regulations and traditions and non-biblical practices goes on and on and on with these religious Jews. They weren't all bad, by the way. Some of them were good practices. But the list would stretch on and on and on. And so here's Jesus in Jerusalem, the, the epicenter of Jewish religious life, surrounded by these religious Jews from different sects with different beliefs and different practices and different areas of power and influence who cannot agree on nearly one single thing except for Jesus. You see, when it, when it came to Jesus, they were united by a common cause, namely getting rid of him because he disrupted their way of life, their power structures, their influence. He, he was a stumbling block. He was a rock of offense to these religious Jews. And here he is not only in Jerusalem, but in the temple, teaching them the truth about God. And so they, they take turns trying to intellectually and theologically embarrass Jesus, the one who is in the beginning with God, John 1, 2. The one who was God. John 1 1 they're trying to embarrass the one through whom all things were made John 1 3 the one in whom was life and the life was the light of men John 1 4 here they're trying to best the one who declares to man what is his thought Amos 4 13 they didn't know who they were talking to, obviously. And so Jesus, when confronted by these men with all their rules and all their regulations and all their rituals and all of their religious requirements, he doesn't say to them, Here, O Sadducees, or here, O Pharisees, or here, O Herodians, or here, O Essenes. No, he says, Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, 
The Lord is one. He's not a little bit of what you believe and a little bit of what you believe and a little bit of what you believe. No, he says the Lord our God is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. It's as simple as that, as he so often did. Jesus took the most profound and most powerful life-transforming concept and communicated it in a way that was so simple, even a child could understand it. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Mark 12, 34. They, they couldn't bring themselves to challenge him anymore. And yet all that he did was quote the command of God from 1400 years earlier recorded in Deuteronomy 6, 4 that they were all very familiar with. And what he did not quote was the five verses that follow it because he didn't have to. It was understood because they all knew it and just in case you don't, let's read it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. In other words, Jesus says this one simple command should consume every single aspect of your life. Your heart should ever be filled with the love that you have for God. Your children should constantly be learning from you just how much you love God. When you're at home, your speech should demonstrate how much you love God. When you're in public, your speech should demonstrate how much you love God. When you go to bed at night, you you should be thinking about how much you love God. When you wake up in the morning, you should be thinking about how much you love God. Everything you put your hand to should reveal how much you love God. Everything you look to should be focused on how much you love God. It should be undeniably clear to everyone who ever meets you just how much you love God. Jesus was saying every single aspect of your life should be utterly consumed by your love for God, but instead you're worried about how loving him might affect or disrupt your way of life. And to be completely honest with you, I don't think it's any different for us today. I mean, generally speaking, no one has a problem within the church at least, no one has a problem with the concept of loving God. It's the practice of it that worries us. Why? Because it threatens our way of life. You see, if you truly love God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind, with all your strength as Jesus continued and you love your neighbor as yourself, that means you can't love anything else in your life the same way. Nothing else in your life can be as important to you as loving God and loving others. And if that, if that is not actually the case in your life right now, then something in your life has to change. 
Which is why loving God as we were created to is so uh, disruptive in our lives because it forces us to change that we're living, which of course is not always easy to do, which is also why Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, Luke 9, 23, because it's a decision that we have to make every single day to change whatever it is in your life that needs changing in order to be able to love him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And I wonder, what would our lives look like if we actually did that every day? If we actually changed the way that we're living until there's nothing left standing in the way of us loving God with everything that we have. I mean, what would the church look like if Christians actually changed their lives every day so that they, uh, God, they could love God the way that he commanded us to? What would our neighborhoods what would our communities look like if every church was full of believers who abandoned every other pursuit in their lives that got in the way of loving God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength? I can tell you this. It is disruptive. Because when you love God more than anything else in your life, it changes everything else in your life which is the message the author of Hebrews was trying to get across to these Essene Jews who had come to Christ in his church, and yet they didn't want following Jesus to disrupt life as usual. They were so steeped in their Old Testament, Old Covenant patterns of living that they were pushing back against the changes that living under the New Covenant required. And so the question for these <clears throat> Hebrew Christians then, and I believe the question for Christians today is, are you all in? When it comes to loving Jesus Christ, are you all in? Are you willing to allow your love for Jesus to become so pervasive in your life that it actually disrupts your former patterns of living until your life looks nothing like it used to? Are you all in? This is, this is the question we must answer as we've come to this ninth chapter of the letter of Hebrews where we'll pick the story back up where we left off last time. So let's read it together. We'll begin uh, chapter 9 with the first 10 verses. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table, and the bread of the presence. It was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. These things we cannot now speak in detail. And these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and but only once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. 
According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So before getting into uh, the differences between life and worship under the two different covenants, the author takes the time to describe the relationship between God and his people under the first covenant, what we now refer to as uh, the old covenant, which was given to the people of God through Moses, of course, at Mount Sinai, to govern their lives and their worship of and interaction with God. And look, at its best, it was a foreshadowing of a better covenant to come. The, the bread of the presence symbolically represented the covenant of God with his people as described in Leviticus 24.8. The manna represented God's provision for his people as described in Exodus 16. Uh, the lid of the ark of the covenant, the mercy seat, was the earthly counterpart to the throne of grace described in Hebrews 4.16. In fact, uh, the whole outer room of the tabernacle represented the entire Old Covenant era mentioned uh, in verse 9 above where the general population of God's people could not draw near to him. While the Holy of Holies, the inner room represented, of course, the New Covenant era where the presence of Christ resides. And then there's the path of the priests from the outer room to the inner room, which pictured the movement uh, toward God that we're all called to under the New Covenant. And so uh, I could go on and on and on here about the symbolism of the old covenant to the new. But as the author states, of these things we cannot now speak in detail, meaning I'm not telling you all of this to get sidetracked in a lengthy discussion about the items in the tabernacle. And so he continues to the real point of what he's trying to say as he describes the restricted process of approaching God under the old covenant. And as you can see by the description here we just read, everything was carefully measured and regulated and limited under the old covenant you couldn't just you couldn't just walk into the tabernacle whenever you felt like it into the presence of God to worship him you would die you couldn't walk in anytime you wanted to worship or to communicate with him only certain people at certain times in a certain manner could enter in to the presence of God in other words the author says under the old covenant a designated person went to a designated place at a designated time with a designated offering and in that designated place there were designated instruments of worship which the designated person would use in a designated manner to atone for designated sins of God's designated people. Everything was predetermined and carefully regulated and limited. And as a result, it was insufficient. Insufficient in scope, insufficient in permanency, and insufficient in adequacy in dealing with our sin. And so there had to be a better way. Let's keep reading verses 11 through 14 as the author shows us a better way. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, 
how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, what the old covenant was incapable of doing, the new is more than sufficient for. Why? Because Jesus Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. So Jesus did what no one else could do because of who he is. And as a result, listen, as a result, we now have a responsibility to live under the new covenant in a way that no one ever did under the old. You see, Jesus was all in for us which means now for the first time since the old covenant was instituted, God's people can finally be all in for him. The old covenant was limited. The new covenant is unlimited, not only in its atoning work for our sin, but in its expectation for God's people to be able to serve him in the way we were created to. How much more Will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works for what? To serve the living God. You see, under the old covenant, the ability of God's people to worship him, to draw near to him, to serve him was limited. It was regulated. It was predetermined. Under the new covenant, our ability and responsibility to worship and to draw near to and to serve God is unlimited. Listen, uh, there's a profound misunderstanding in the modern church today. That under the old covenant, God required much from his people, while under the new covenant, he requires very little from us because of grace. Now listen, if it wasn't for grace, none of us would be here. But don't make the mistake that so many have of confusing the grace of God that saves us, which cost Jesus everything, with the call of God for us to follow him, which cost us everything for the people of God the idea that serving him under the new covenant is somehow intended to be easier with less expectations or less time or less energy or less cost involved that is a fallacy in addition to our text in Hebrews today Exodus chapters 20 21 22 23 uh, the book of Leviticus other parts of the Old Testament we see the old covenant spelled out Rules for God's people to live by that touched every area of their lives. Rules about what to eat and what not to eat. What to wear and what not to wear. Where to worship, when to worship, how to worship. Rules about how to treat each other. How much to give to God. Where to give it. When to give it. And these rules governed everything that God's people did on a daily basis. The Lord set forth for the people a set of expectations for giving. Expectations for giving their time, their energy, their abilities, their money, their goods, their devotion. And it was all intended to be a form of worship from his people back to him. And it was all regulated. It was all based actually on percentages. Percentages of their lives and possessions. You you gave a percentage of your time, a percentage of your money, a percentage of your life. Everything was regulated to offer God worship. And then along comes Jesus. And everything changes. But not in the way that I think most 
Christians today seem to think. You see, Jesus was quite clear. In Matthew 5, he compares life under the two covenants. Verse 17, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Why? Because we couldn't. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Listen, the iota is the Greek word for yod, which is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the dot was the part of each letter used to differentiate between the different Hebrew letters. In other words, the tiniest, most seemingly insignificant part of every single letter of the law will be fulfilled by Christ. Now, listen to this part. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say whoever omits or deletes one of these commandments. He says whoever even relaxes one of the least of them will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. These are very strong, very clear words. And as we read on, we see exactly what Jesus meant. You see, he didn't actually come to take away the requirements that God set before his people. On the contrary, Jesus came to raise the bar. Verse 21, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That isn't exactly easier than the old rule, right? It's much easier to simply say don't murder other people than it is to say now, under the new covenant, now you're not even supposed to have an unrighteous anger with your brother or you could be liable to the same judgment. Skip down to verse 27. You've heard it that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That didn't get easier, right? The requirement for staying free from adultery just became infinitely more difficult. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That didn't get easier. Verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, in other words, under the old covenant, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. That didn't get easier. 
Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Seriously, Jesus. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, you go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You're getting the idea. The new covenant hasn't released us from requirements for serving God. On the contrary, verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That didn't get easier. Under the old covenant, he required a portion of your day devoted to worship and prayer. Under the new covenant, what does he require? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice always pray without ceasing give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you do you understand under the old covenant God's people were only required to go so far for God under the new covenant we're required to go all the way he wants us to be all in in other words no more percentages your worship and service to me is no longer limited because I want it all I want all of you all of your heart all of your soul all of your mind and all of your strength. But these Hebrew Christians, they were, they were so indoctrinated in their old covenant way of thinking that they were having trouble with the concept of going all in for Christ. And, and of course today we think it's optional. As you can see, the real difference between the old covenant and the new is not that the requirements got easier from one to the other. No, it's that under the old covenant which Christ has fulfilled, they served God in the hopes that he would save them. While under the new covenant, if you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, we serve God because we know that he already has saved us. Because of the unlimited work of Christ on our behalf that's where grace comes in so we serve him not of course to earn our salvation but because of our salvation because he was all in for you which begs the question because of that grace because of what he's done are you all in for him let's keep reading verses 15 through 22 therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the author says, because of who Jesus is, and because of what he's done, he's the mediator of a new covenant. But why mediate a new covenant? What, what's wrong 
with the old covenant, right? That these Hebrews grew up following, particularly these Essene Hebrews who had focused so much of their lives on ritual and purity and benevolence. Why wasn't that enough? Well, because as good as it was, it was only temporary. Jesus came to mediate a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised, what? Eternal inheritance. You understand the old covenant was temporary. The new covenant is eternal. More specifically, what the old covenant offered was temporary as opposed to what the new covenant offers, which is eternal, which is another reason God's people have to be all in when it comes to loving and serving Christ. Because he's the only eternal hope for this world. But let's be honest, the idea to unbelievers that a violent death two millennia ago can somehow transform their lives today, I think is becoming an increasingly difficult concept to sell to this culture. People just aren't buying into the church and its message like they used to, partly because for decades the church presented the gospel of Jesus Christ as nothing more than a Christian version of the American dream. Right, where we, we say we love Jesus, but in practice, we've loved all of the same things in our culture that everyone else does more than we've loved Jesus. And so instead of attracting people to our message by showing them the all-consuming love of Christ in our own lives, which, by the way, is shockingly counter to our culture, we've tried instead to attract them by convincing them that we're really not all that different from the world which is what happens when you confuse compromise with compassion. When you worry more about losing people's approval than you do about losing their souls, that is misguided compassion at best. And in case you don't know it by now, that experiment has been a miserable, costly failure for the, the American church. I've said it before, compassion has kept more people out of heaven than hate ever will. As long as we're willing to compromise our message in deference to people's negative feelings about crosses and the shedding of blood and crucifixions and sin and hell and judgment, they will never see the true power of the gospel lived out in our own lives. Well then, how will they ever be convinced that this gospel is real? It starts when they see God's people actually loving Christ with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their mind and with all their strength. Because when you go all in for Jesus Christ to the point that he's more important to you than anything and everything else, your life changes dramatically. Your patterns of living are disrupted. Your choices and decisions won't always conform to conventional popular wisdom. People won't always understand why you behave the way you do or give the way you do or sacrifice the way you do or care the way you do or say the things you do. But when you love Jesus Christ with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, his message becomes your message. His cause becomes your cause. His focus becomes your focus. His will becomes your will and his life becomes your life to the degree that, that you actually begin to live like Jesus lived. And you say the things that Jesus said 
And you do the things that Jesus did, which was decidedly counter to the culture. And yet everywhere he went, there were people who wanted to hear what he had to say. Why? Because his message was so utterly different than the message of the world. It wasn't just the message of hope. There are a lot of messages in the world that offer us hope in one form or another, as inadequate or misguided as they may be. It wasn't just a message of hope. It was a message of eternal hope. And the culture around him wanted to hear it because deep down they knew they needed it. And I believe deep down this culture that we're living in today knows that they need it too. But it does us no good to say it if we aren't actually living it out in front of them. The great British scholar John Stott, one of my favorites, he passed away just a few years ago. He wrote, the gospel contains some features so alien to modern thought that it will always appear folly to intellectuals, however hard we strive and rightly to show that it is true and reasonable. The cross will always constitute an assault on human self-righteousness and a challenge to human self-indulgence. Its scandal, stumbling block, simply cannot be removed. Indeed, the church speaks most authentically to the world, not when it makes its shameful little prudential compromises, but when it refuses to do so. Not when it has become indistinguishable from the world, but when its distinctive light shines most brightly brightly. Thus, Christian people who live under the authority of God's revelation, however anxious they are to communicate it to others, manifest a sturdy independence of mind and spirit. You see, the question is, are you all in for Jesus? Because you'll have to be if you're going to have an eternal impact on people's lives for the sake of the gospel. Let's keep reading verse 23 to the end of the chapter. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so the author concludes the chapter by highlighting the finality of the atoning work of Christ, a finality the first covenant never could achieve, and yet it is not only a final work, it is an all-encompassing work. In other words, the atoning death of Jesus Christ was a once-for-all work. In fact, back in verse 15, the author pointing to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross says a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So the work of Christ in mediating this new covenant was sufficient and final for all of humanity's history, past, present, and future. That's why he was able to say that Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice 
of himself. If you read that verse in the ancient Greek, the phrase put away is the Greek word athetasis, which literally means cancellation. You see, the old covenant addressed our sin. The new covenant cancels our sin. Which means when you come into Christ, when you submit your life to Him in repentance, you're saved by His grace through your faith. Every sin you've ever committed and every sin you are ever going to commit is canceled by the blood of Jesus Christ. Bible scholar Raymond Brown says, By Christ's death it is not only that the devil is deposed and the power of death overcome, but also that sin is vanquished. Jesus came to rob sin of its tyranny and its suffocating stranglehold on man. Obviously, sin is still at large in the world, just as death and the devil are still active. But all three have been robbed of their former hold on man. In Christ, we are free from their enslaving power. Of course, this is language that we use a lot in church, as we should. But let's face it. After 2,000 years of talking about Jesus shedding his blood for our sin once for all, I think it's become very familiar language to us. Not so for these first century Hebrews, who as a people had spent nearly that much time having to send a priest into the tabernacle for them over and over and over and over and over again perpetually to atone for their sins. And yet now they're being told that all of that is unnecessary because of Jesus, their sins have been canceled once for all. Listen to what the author says in chapter 10, and we'll close with this, starting at verse 11, as he finishes his thought on the subject. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You see, if the law was able to make anyone perfect, then the sacrifices would have ceased. The animal sacrifices symbolized the payment for sin, but they could not accomplish it. There was no animal worthy of paying the price for a human being's sin before a holy God. And so the sacrifices had to continue because of the ongoing grip of sin on humanity. You understand the only thing the law accomplished was to prove our desperate need for a savior. Without Jesus, there is no remission of sins. Without Jesus, there's no victory over death. Without Jesus, there's no salvation from the wrath of God. 
Without Jesus, there's no help for today. Without Jesus, there's no help for tomorrow. Without Jesus, there's no light for this world. Without Jesus, there's no plan for your life. Without Jesus, there's no rest for your soul. Without Jesus, there's no peace in troubled times. Without Jesus, there's no purpose for humanity. Without Jesus, there is no eternal life. Without Jesus, we have nothing, are nothing, accomplish nothing, and become nothing without Jesus we are lost forever you understand there's no alternative this is, this is what the author was trying to tell these first century Hebrew Christians the law that you want to continue to rely on to save you it will never be enough and listen 21st century Christian if you're relying on anything other than Jesus Christ to provide the purpose and peace and hope that we all need, whatever it is you're relying on outside of Christ, it will never be enough. And if you're not a Christian and you think you've found some other pathway to save you from eternal darkness, a godless, hopeless void that never ends, that you have been terribly misled. Because there is no other way to salvation. And listen, if that describes you today, if any of that describes you today, there is only one remedy. Take up your cross. Die to yourself every single day. And love Jesus Christ with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. I'm all in. Are you? Let's pray.